Do you have kids in your life? Whether you're a parent, teacher, aunt, uncle, grandparent, babysitter, we all know that keeping kids calm and entertained can be difficult. That's why I want to introduce to you the newest show by Slumber Studios. It's called Snuggle, and it features calming stories for kids of all ages. Whether it's for bedtime, nap time, or just for fun, Snuggle offers a cozy world of imagination and adventure. You'll find original stories where we swim with mermaids, visit old toy stores, and try out magical wands. And you'll hear our modernized renditions of classic tales like Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland. Just search Snuggle in your podcast player and be sure to follow the show so that it's easy to find next time the kids want a good story to snuggle up with. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep. The place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, chapters 16 and 17. In the previous chapters, Captain Nemo led Professor Aranax and Concierge on a walk along the ocean floor. In the following chapters, our adventurers wander through a submarine forest. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 16 A Submarine Forest We had at last arrived on the borders of this forest, doubtless one of the finest of Captain Nemo's immense domains. He looked upon it as his own, and considered he had the same right over it that the first men had in the first days of the world. And, indeed, who would have disputed with him the possession of this submarine property. What other hardier pioneer would come, hatchet in hand, to cut down the dark copses? This forest was composed of large tree plants, and the moment we penetrated under its vast arcades, I was struck 
by the singular position of their branches, a position I had not yet observed. Not a herb which carpeted the ground, nor a branch which clothed the trees, was either broken or bent. Nor did they extend horizontally, all stretched up to the surface of the ocean. Not a filament, not a ribbon, however thin they might be, but kept as straight as a rod of iron. The fuci and leonas grew in rigid, perpendicular lines due to the density of the element which had produced them. Motionless, yet when bent to one side by the hand, they directly resumed their former position. Truly, it was the region of perpendicularity. I soon accustomed myself to this fantastic position as well as to the comparative darkness which surrounded us. The soil of the forest seemed covered with sharp blocks, difficult to avoid. The submarine flora struck me as being very perfect and richer even than it would have been in the Arctic or tropical zones where these productions are not so plentiful. But for some minutes, I involuntarily confounded the genera, taking zoophytes for hydrophytes, animals for plants, and who would not have been mistaken? The fauna and the flora are too closely allied in this submarine world. These plants are self-propagated, and the principle of their existence is in the water, which upholds and nourishes them. The greater number, instead of leaves, shot forth blades of capricious shapes, comprised within a scale of colours. Pink, carmine, green, olive, fawn and brown. I saw there, but not dried up, as our specimens of the Nautilus are, pavanari, spread like a fan, as if to catch the breeze. Scarlet ceramides, whose laminaries extended their edible shoots of fern-shaped nereocystae, which grow to a height of fifteen feet. Clusters of astabuli, whose stems increase in size upwards, and numbers of other marine plants, all devoid of flowers. Curious anomaly, fantastic element, said an ingenious naturalist. 
in which the animal kingdom blossoms and the vegetable does not. Under these numerous shrubs, as large as trees of the temperate zone, and under their damp shadow, were massed together real bushes of living flowers, hedges of zoophytes, on which blossomed some zebra meanderings with crooked grooves, some yellow caryophyllae, and, to complete the illusion, the fish flies flew from branch to branch like a swarm of hummingbirds, whilst yellow lepisicompti, with bristling jaws, dactyloterae, and monocendrites rose at our feet like a flight of snipes. In about an hour, Captain Nemo gave the signal to halt. I, for my part, was not sorry, and we stretched ourselves under an arbor of alarai, the long, thin blades of which stood up like arrows. This short rest seemed delicious to me. There was nothing wanting but the charm of conversation, but impossible to speak, impossible to answer. I only put my great copper head to concierge. I saw the worthy fellow's eyes glistening with delight, and to show his satisfaction, he shook himself in his breastplate of air in the most comical way in the world. After four hours of this walking, I was surprised not to find myself dreadfully hungry. How to account for this state of the stomach, I could not tell. But instead, I felt insurmountably the desire to sleep, which happens to all divers. And my eyes soon closed behind the thick glasses, and I fell into a heavy slumber, which the movement alone had prevented before. Captain Nemo and his robust companion, stretched in the clear crystal, set us the example. How long I remained buried in this drowsiness, I cannot judge. But, when I awoke, the sun seemed sinking towards the horizon. Captain Nemo had already risen, and I was beginning to stretch my limbs, when an unexpected apparition brought me briskly to my feet. A few steps off, a monstrous sea spider, about thirty-eight inches high, was watching me with squinting eyes, ready to spring upon me.
though my diver's dress was thick enough to defend me from the bite of this animal, I could not help shuddering with horror. Concier and the sailor of the Nautilus awoke at this moment. Captain Nemo pointed out the hideous crustacean, which a blow from the butt-end of the gun knocked over, and I saw the horrible claws of the monster writhe in terrible convulsions. This accident reminded me that other animals more to be feared might haunt these obscure depths against whose attacks my diving dress would not protect me. I had never thought of it before, but I now resolved to be on my guard. Indeed, I thought that this halt would mark the termination of our walk, but I was mistaken, for, instead of returning to the Nautilus, Captain Nemo continued his bold excursion. The ground was still on the incline. Its declivity seemed to be getting greater and to be leading us to greater depths. It must have been about three o'clock when we reached a narrow valley between high, perpendicular walls, situated about seventy-five fathoms deep. Thanks to the perfection of our apparatus, we were forty-five fathoms below the limit which nature seemed to impose on man as to his submarine excursions. I say seventy-five fathoms, though I had no instrument by which to judge the distance. But I knew that even in the clearest waters, the solar rays could not penetrate further. And accordingly, the darkness deepened. At ten paces, not an object was visible. I was groping my way when I suddenly saw a brilliant white light. Captain Nemo had just put his electric apparatus into use. His companion did the same, and Concier and I followed. By turning a screw, I established a communication between the wire and the spiral glass, and the sea lit by our four lanterns, was illuminated for a circle of thirty-six yards. Captain Nemo was still plunging into the dark depths of the forest, whose trees were getting scarcer at every step. I noticed that vegetable life disappeared sooner than animal life, the Medusa had already abandoned the arid soil, from which a great number of animals, zoophytes, articulata, mollusks, and fishes still obtained sustenance. As we walked, I thought the light of our Rumkorf apparatus 
could not fail to draw some inhabitant from its dark couch. But if they did approach us, they had at least kept a respectful distance from the hunters. Several times I saw Captain Nemo stop, put his gun to his shoulder, and after some moments, drop it and walk on. At last, after about four hours, this marvellous excursion came to an end. A wall of superb rocks in an imposing mass rose before us. A heap of gigantic blocks, an enormous, steep granite shore forming dark grottoes, but which presented no practicable slope. It was the prop of the island of Crespo. It was the earth. Captain Nemo stopped suddenly. A gesture of his brought us all to a halt, and, however desirous I might be to scale the wall, I was obliged to stop. Here ended Captain Nemo's domains, and he would not go beyond them. Further on was a portion of the globe he might not trample upon. The return began. Captain Nemo had returned the head of his little band, directing their course without hesitation. I thought we were not following the same road to return to the Nautilus. The new road was very steep, and consequently very painful. We approached the surface of the sea with rapidity, but this return to the upper strata was not so sudden as to cause relief from the pressure too rapidly which might have produced serious disorder in our organisation and brought an internal lesion so fatal to divers. Very soon, light reappeared and grew, and the sun being low on the horizon, the refraction edged the different objects with a spectral ring. At ten yards and a half deep, we walked amidst a shawl of little fishes of all kinds, more numerous than the birds of the air, and also more agile, but no aquatic game worthy of a shot had as yet met our gaze. When at that moment I saw the cat Captain shoulder his gun quickly and follow a moving object in the shrubs. He fired. I heard a slight hissing and a creature fell stunned at some distance from us. It was a magnificent sea otter, an enhydrus, the only exclusively marine quadruped. 
This otter was five feet long and must have been very valuable. Its skin, chestnut brown above and silvery underneath, would have made one of those beautiful furs so sought after in Russian and Chinese markets. The finesse and the luster of its coat would certainly have fetched eighty pounds. I admired this curious mammal, with its rounded head ornamented with short ears, its round eyes and white whiskers like those of a cat, with webbed feet and nails and tufted tail. This precious animal, hunted and tracked by fishermen, has now become very rare and taken refuge chiefly in the northern parts of the Pacific. More probably, its race would soon become extinct. Captain Nemo's companion took the beast, threw it over his shoulder, and we continued our journey. For one hour, a plain of sand lay stretched before us. Sometimes it rose to within two yards and some inches of the surface of the water. I then saw our image clearly reflected, drawn inversely, and above us appeared an identical group reflecting our movements and our actions. In a word, like us in every point, except that they walked with their heads downward and their feet in the air. Another effect I noticed, which was the passage of thick clouds, which formed and vanished rapidly. But on reflection, I understood that these seeming clouds were due to the varying thickness of the reeds at the bottom, and I could even see the fleecy foam which their broken tops multiplied on the water, and the shadows of large birds passing above our heads, whose rapid flight I could discern on the surface of the sea. On this occasion, I was witness to one of the finest gunshots which ever made the nerves of a hunter thrill. A large bird of great breadth of wing, clearly visible, approached, hovering over us. Captain Nemo's companion shouldered his gun and fired when it was only a few yards above the waves. The creature fell stunned, and the force of its fall brought it within the reach of dexterous hunter's grasp. It was an albatross of the finest kind. Our march had not been interrupted by this incident. For two hours we followed these sandy plains, then fields of algae 
very disagreeable to cross. Candidly, I could do no more when I saw a glimmer of light, which, for a half-mile, broke the darkness of the waters. It was the lantern of the Nautilus. Before twenty minutes were over, we should be on board, and I should be able to breathe with ease, for it seemed that my reservoir supplied air very deficient in oxygen. But I did not reckon on an accidental meeting, which delayed our arrival for some time. I had remained some steps behind when I presently saw Captain Nemo coming hurriedly towards me. With his strong hand, he bent me to the ground, his companion doing the same to Concier. At first, I knew not what to think of this sudden attack, but I was soon reassured by seeing the captain lie down beside me and remain immovable. I was stretched on the ground, just under the shelter of a bush of algae, when, raising my head, I saw some enormous mass casting phosphorescent gleams pass blusteringly by. My blood froze in my veins as I recognised two formidable sharks which threatened us. It was a couple of tinterias, terrible creatures, with enormous tails and a dull, glassy stare, the phosphorescent matter ejected from holes pierced around the muzzle. Monstrous brutes, which would crush a whole man in its iron jaws. I did not know whether Concier stopped to classify them. For my part, I noticed their silver bellies and their huge mouths bristling with teeth from a very unscientific point of view, and more as a possible victim than as a naturalist. Happily, the voracious creatures do not see well. They passed without seeing us, brushing us with their brownish fins, and we escaped by a miracle from a danger certainly greater than meeting a tiger full face in the forest. Half an hour after, guided by the electric light, we reached the Nautilus. The outside door had been left open, and Captain Nemo closed it as soon as we entered the first cell. We then pressed a knob. I heard the pumps working in the midst of the vessel. I felt the water sinking from around me. And, in a few moments, the cell was entirely empty. The inside door then opened, 
and we entered the vestry. There, our diving dress was taken off, not without some trouble, and fairly worn out from want of food and sleep. I returned to my room, in great wonder at this surprising excursion at the bottom of the sea. Chapter 17 4,000 Leagues Under the Pacific The next morning, the 18th of November, I had quite recovered from my fatigues of the day before, and I went on to the platform, just as the second lieutenant was uttering his daily phrase. I was admiring the magnificent aspect of the ocean when Captain Nemo appeared. He did not seem to be aware of my presence and began a series of astronomical observations. Then, when he had finished, he went and leant on the cage of the watchlight and gazed abstractly on the ocean. In the meantime, a number of sailors of the Nautilus, all strong and healthy men, had come up onto the platform. They came to draw up the nets that had been laid all night. These sailors were evidently of different nations, although the European type was visible in all of them. I recognised some unmistakable Irishmen, Frenchmen, slaves, and a Greek, or a Candiote. They were civil, and only used that odd language among themselves, the origin of which I could not guess, neither could I question them. The nets were hauled in. They were a large kind of chalets, like those on the Normandy coasts, great pockets that the waves and a chain fixed in the smaller meshes kept open. These pockets, drawn by iron poles, swept through the water and gathered in everything in their way. That day, they brought up curious specimens from their productive coasts. I reckoned that the hall had brought in more than nine hundred weight of fish. It was a fine haul, but not to be wondered at. Indeed, the nets are let down for several hours and enclose in their meshes an infinite variety. We had no lack of excellent food, and the rapidity of the Nautilus and the attraction of the electric light could always renew our supply. These several productions of the sea were immediately lowered through the panel to the steward's room, some to be eaten fresh and others pickled. 
The fishing ended, the provision of air renewed. I thought that the Nautilus was about to continue its submarine excursion and was preparing to return to my room. When, without further preamble, the captain turned to me, saying, Professor, is not this ocean gifted with real life? It has its tempers and its gentle moods. Yesterday it slept as we did, and now it has awoke after a great night. Look, he continued, it wakes under the caress of the sun. It is going to renew its journal existence. It is an interesting study to watch the play of its organization. It has a pulse, arteries, spasms, and I agree with the learned Maury, who discovered in it a circulation as real as the circulation of blood in animals. Yes, the ocean indeed has circulation, and to promote it, the creator has caused things to multiply in it, caloric salt and alimulculi. When Captain Nemo spoke thus, he seemed altogether changed and aroused an extraordinary emotion in me. Also, he added, true existence is there, and I can imagine the foundations of nautical towns, clusters of submarine houses, which, like the Nautilus, would ascend every morning to breeze at the surface of the water. Free towns, independent cities, yet who knows whether some depots. Captain Nemo finished his sentence with a violent gesture. Then, addressing me as if to chase away some sorrowful thought. Monsieur Aranax, he asked, do you know the depths of the ocean? I only know, Captain, what the principal soundings have taught us. Could you tell them to me, so that I can suit them to my purpose? These are some, I replied, that I remember, if I am not mistaken. A depth of eight thousand yards has to be found in the North Atlantic, and two thousand five hundred yards in the Mediterranean. The most remarkable sounding have been in the South Atlantic, near the 35th parallel, and they gave 12,000 yards, 14,000 yards, and 15,000 yards. To sum up all, it is reckoned that if the bottom of the sea were levelled, its mean depth would be about one and three-quarter leagues. Well, Professor, replied the captain. We shall show you better than I hoped. As to the mean depths of this part of the Pacific, 
I tell you, it is only four thousand yards. Having said this, Captain Nemo went towards the panel and disappeared down the ladder. I followed him and went into the large drawing room. The screw was immediately put in motion and the log gave twenty miles an hour. During the days and weeks that passed, Captain Nemo was very sparing of his visits. I seldom saw him. The lieutenant pricked the ship's course regularly on the chart, so I could always tell exactly the route of the Nautilus. Nearly every day, for some time, the panels of the drawing room were opened and we were never tired of penetrating the mysteries of the submarine world. The general direction of the Nautilus was southeast, and it kept between a hundred and a hundred and fifty yards of depth. One day, however, I do not know why, being drawn diagonally by means of the inclined planes, it touched the bed of the sea. The thermometer indicated a temperature of 4.25%, a temperature that at this depth seemed common to all latitudes. At three o'clock in the morning of the 26th of November, the Nautilus crossed the Tropic of Cancer at 172 degrees longitude. On the 27th instant, it sighted the Sandwich Islands, where Cook died, February 14th, 1779. We had then gone 4,860 leagues from our starting point. In the morning, when I went on the platform, I saw two miles to the windward, Hawaii, the largest of the seven islands that form the group. I saw clearly the cultivated ranges and the several mountain chains that run parallel with the side, and the volcanoes that overtop Mount Rhea, which rise five thousand yards above the level of the sea. Besides other things the net brought up were several flowberii and graceful polypi that are peculiar to that part of the ocean. The direction of the Nautilus was still to the southeast. It crossed the equator December 1st in 142 degrees longitude and on the fourth of the same month, after crossing rapidly and without anything in particular occurring, we sighted the Marcasas group. I saw three miles off Martin's Peak in Nukahiva, the largest of the group that belonged to France. I only saw the woody mountains against the horizon 
because Captain Nemo did not wish to bring the ship to wind. There the nets brought up beautiful specimens of fish, some with azure fins and tails like gold, the flesh of which is unrivaled, some nearly destitute of scales, but of exquisite flavour, others with bony jaws and yellow-tinged gills, as good as bonitos, all fish that would be of use to us. After leaving these charming islands protected by the French flag, from the 4th to the 11th of December, the Nautilus sailed over about 2,000 miles. During the daytime of the 11th of December, I was busy reading in the large drawing room. Ned Land and Concier watched the luminous water through the half-open panels. The Nautilus was immovable. While its reservoirs filled, it kept at a depth of a thousand yards, a region rarely visited in the ocean, and in which large fish were seldom seen. I was then reading a charming book by Jean Mace, The Slaves of the Stomach, and I was learning some valuable lessons from it when Concier interrupted me. Will Master come here a moment? he said in a curious voice. What is the matter, Concier? I want Master to look. I rose, went, and leaned on my elbows before the panes and watched. In a full electric light, an enormous black mass, quite immovable, was suspended in the midst of the waters. I watched it attentively, seeking to find out the nature of this gigantic cetacean. But a sudden thought crossed my mind. A vessel. I said, half aloud. Yes, replied the Canadian. A disabled ship that has sunk perpendicularly. Ned Land was right. We were close to a vessel of which the tattered shrouds still hung from their chains. The keel seemed to be in good order and it had been wrecked at most some few hours. Three stumps of masts, broken off about two feet above the bridge, showed that the vessel had had to sacrifice its masts. But, lying on its side, it had filled, and it was heeling over to port. This skeleton of what it had once been was a sad spectacle as it lay lost under the waves. 
but sadder still was the sight of the bridge, where some bodies, bound with ropes, were still lying. What a scene. We were dumb. Our hearts beat fast before this shipwreck, taken, as it were, from life and photographed in its last moments. And I saw already, coming towards it with hungry eyes, enormous sharks, attracted by the flesh. However, the Nautilus, turning, went round the submerged vessel, and in one instant I read on the stern, the Florida Sunderland. <laughs>